oddly enough, even though I was such an oddball, I had a lot of friends growing up. And I found out later that the judgmentalism or the judgment that I was perceiving oftentimes wasn't there. It was only like going back to high school reunions and you realize like, oh, everyone was messed up. And I realized in hindsight, like no one was paying that much attention to me. Like I was <laughs> hyper aware of my supermarket basket sneakers. I was hyper aware of my trapper keeper notebook that I had bought at Salvation Army, but no one really noticed. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, on a great day to be alive. I hope you're making the most of these 24 hours. You have been bequeathed by a power larger than yourself, than ourselves, than myself. I'm going to let you fill in the blank as to what that power is. I'm not going to assign you any any religious affiliations today. I'm just going to say, hey, let's make the most of these 24 hours. If you're new to Crazy Money, this is the show where we analyze the connection between money and happiness, work and meaning through the lens of our guests' expertise and or money journeys. Today, I've got a very lens through which to analyze those important topics, and that is the lens of my guest, Moby. Moby is a musician who has sold over 20 million records in his multi-decade career. He might be known best for his 1999 album, Play, which has sold over, I think, 15 million copies at this point. It included the incredible song, Southside, that was a duet with Gwen Stefani, one version of it was anyway, and his song, Porcelain, on there is probably his most recognizable tune. You can hear it on Spotify, on that there Spotify or whatever app you listen to your music on. Suffice to say that this record was massive. Every single song on the record was licensed for TV, film, or commercial usage. And the record was just everywhere. Moby had this experience where he just blew up. He was growing in success and recognition through the 90s, but play took it to a whole other level. And we talked today about how he dealt with that massive fame. We're going to jump right into it. So let me tell you more about Moby. Moby's first job as a DJ was spinning records at a dive bar next to a methadone clinic. And a few years later, he was rich, famous, had gotten everything he'd ever wanted, but never felt more depressed. Having grown up as poor white trash in the wealthy town of Darien, Connecticut, Moby's financial status made him feel like a third-class citizen. And decades later, despite selling tens of millions of records, winning all kinds of awards, and experiencing baffling success, his words, he still feels disenfranchised on some level. I think this is really interesting about how the success later in our lives still can't change the way we feel about that kid that we were all those years ago. The massive, unpredictable success of his 1999 album, Play, set an incredibly high bar against which the press, music critics, and he himself measured his subsequent work. His consumption of alcohol, cocaine, and related chemical goodies drove him to a very dark place from which he finally rebounded in 2008. He's been sober ever since. In this episode of Crazy Money, Moby addresses all these issues, as he does in his upcoming documentary, Moby Doc, which will premiere along with an orchestral version of his greatest hits in an album called Reprise. And so we talk about the documentary, we talk about the record, we talk about his relationship also to finances, debt, why he's never had a mortgage, in fact, why he can't even bring himself to borrow 50 cents for a pack of gum. He also shares the origin of his full-time commitment to animal rights and veganism. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Moby. Moby, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. Moby, you've got a new documentary out in which you tell your story from childhood 
to musical success. I thought we'd start in the middle so that we can see where life had taken you, then we'll go back to the beginning. Tell me about your trip to Barcelona in 2002 for the MTV Music Awards. Okay, the year is 2002. I am at both figuratively and sort of literally the pinnacle of my success. When I say literally, I mean, I'm in Barcelona at the MTV Music Awards and I'm staying at the top of the Arts Hotel, which is arguably one of the nicest hotels in the world. And at the tippity tippity top, there are four penthouse apartments. And my neighbors in the four penthouse apartments were Madonna, Bon Jovi, and P. Diddy. Pretty good company. For me at that point, I couldn't believe like that I had this level of baffling success. To contextualize it a bit, I grew up poor white trash, playing in weird little punk rock bands that no one came to see. And my first job after dropping out of college was DJing in a dive bar next to a methadone center, playing to like three people a night. So (laughs) come a long way. My goal when I was 17 years old was to play a show that more than five people came to. That was it. Beyond that, I had almost no ambitions whatsoever. So I'm at the top of this hotel I've already won multiple MTV awards. I've sold 20 million records at this point. I know that I'm going to be winning another MTV award later that night or the next day. And so I decide to have a party to celebrate. Not that many people show up, but, you know, 15 people show up and I get very drunk. I've since gotten sober, but at this point, clearly I was very far from getting sober and I got very drunk. And by 10 or 11 o'clock, everyone had left. And for some reason, I was just racked with despondency. Everything I'd ever wanted had been given to me a thousand times fold, a hundred thousand times fold, a million times fold. And I was less happy than I'd ever been. When I was 24, 25 years old, I lived in an abandoned factory in a crack neighborhood and I had no running water and no bathroom. I was happier there than in this penthouse apartment with money in the bank and awards on my shelf, et cetera. And it was so confusing, you know, because I thought even a modicum of the success I'd had was going to deliver unspeakable happiness, like happiness that no one could touch. And there I was abjectly miserable. And so I decided to try to kill myself. I was going to jump out of the window But I couldn't because it was a super fancy hotel suite and the windows only opened a little bit. So I felt like such a failure. I was like, okay, I'm a failure at being happy and I'm even a failure trying to kill myself. And so you go back to New York City and your downward spiral continues. Oh, I mean, the downward spiral continued for the next six or seven. I didn't get sober until 2008. And also during the next six or seven years, my fame started to go away. My success started waning a little bit and that made me even crazier because even though the fame and the success wasn't making me happy, I was terrified at the thought of it going away. (laughs) Oh my God, what a she-devil of a temptress that you've got here with, I'm blanking on a name, but there's a comedian who calls it the bitch goddess of comedy, which is you're obsessed with it and you can't get away with it and yet it will never make you happy when you get it, when, when you attain it. 
You say in your documentary that a typical night is 15 drinks, a couple hundred dollars worth of cocaine, and eventually around 7 a.m., some Xanax and Vicodin to try to help you get to sleep. Was that a typical evening for you? Yeah, that was moderate. I mean, obviously now a typical evening now that I'm a sober 55 year old is a rerun of 30 rock and a cup of lavender mint tea and in bed fast asleep by 945. Like I'm so boring and so much happier being boring than being an out of control, narcissistic, entitled drunk. All right. So let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up and what was your family situation like? My origin story is a little bit odd. I was born in Harlem. My dad was a teacher at Columbia and my mom was a receptionist at Barnard. Then my dad killed himself when I was two. And my mother and I moved to Darien, Connecticut, where she had grown up. And I'm sure that people listening are very familiar with Darien, Connecticut. It comes up once in a while on the podcast, actually. (laughs) Yeah, one would imagine. For a small town of 16,000 people, it certainly packs a punch above its demographic weight. So I grew up there because my mom had grown up there and the schools were great, but we were broke. You know, we were on food stamps and welfare until I was 18. So I grew up in kind of abject poverty in one of the wealthiest towns in the United States. You know, we lived in a garage apartment that barely had heat in the winter. I mean, it was sort of Abe Lincoln (laughs) style. And also my mom battled some mental, emotional issues, and it was an interesting childhood. How did growing up poor in such a wealthy environment affect your sense of self? Oh, in ways that even to this day, I'm still affected by it. Basically, I felt like a third-class citizen. Growing up, I mean, people, kids everywhere, no matter where you grow up, no matter what socioeconomic environment you grow up in, you are aware of status. You know, oftentimes the sort of inherited or conferred status of your parents, you know, success or wealth in a place like Darien, like it came down to if you didn't have red tag Levi's jeans, you were ostracized. If you didn't have the right Adidas Stan Smith, you were ostracized. Like it was gnarly. And if you were a kid like me who got all their clothes secondhand at Goodwill and bought their sneakers in the supermarket basket, it made me constantly feel like a third-class citizen, which it's a hard thing to move past, even if your circumstances change. How do you think that shows up for you today? It shows up for me today by still largely thinking of myself as disenfranchised or maybe if not a third class citizen, like maybe I've moved up the ladder to just being a second class citizen. Of all the people who've sold over 20 million albums, you're a third class citizen. Well, and of course I can appreciate the irony. Like a friend (laughs) of mine said to me once, she said, you know, you are the man. And I didn't know if she meant like you, the man, but what she meant was like when people talk about quote unquote, the man, like in a bad way, they're talking about you. Like she's like, (laughs) she's like, you're a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant cisgendered man from Connecticut and you're affluent. Like you are what they complain about. And I was like, but I grew up dirt poor and used to live in an abandoned factory. It was so odd to be seen as 
part of this sort of like waspy 1% when in my mind, I'm a kid who used to buy cigarettes for his mom with food stamps. I think that's part of the weird dialogue for a lot of people in today's culture that how other people see them doesn't fit with how they feel inside in a lot of cases. And that's a whole other podcast, but we'll leave it at that for now. Did you have friends growing up? Were there other poor kids you could pal around with? Or did you have rich kids that saw through the the sneakers that were attached with that plastic tab in the Kmart? Yeah, well, actually... Oddly enough, even though I was such an oddball, I had a lot of friends growing up. And I found out later that the judgmentalism or the judgment that I was perceiving oftentimes wasn't there. It was only like going back to high school reunions and you realize like, oh, everyone was messed up. Everyone was confused. Like even like, you know, the phenomenally affluent kids spending their summers at the country club and their winters in Switzerland, like, they were messed up. And I realized in hindsight, like no one was paying that much attention to me. Like I was <laughs> hyper aware of my supermarket basket sneakers. I was hyper aware of my trapper keeper notebook that I had bought at Salvation Army, but no one really noticed. So I had a decent amount of friends and I would go to their houses and like marvel at the most basic things that they had that I didn't have, like carpets. You know, I thought that was the most amazing thing. I was like, they have, they have wall to wall carpets. Like they have heating. Like, this is amazing. Like what paradise do they live in? They must be so happy. Yeah. You tell an interesting anecdote that when you'd carpool home from college, you'd have your fellow students drop you off at this giant estate near your house, pretending that you lived there. Do you think they bought it? No, absolutely not. Because the estate <laughs> that I picked was owned by the town of New Canaan. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was a big sign. I realized if it was night, you couldn't see it that clearly, but there's a big sign indicating that this was not a private house. So I don't think anyone bought it. What I used to do in elementary school, if I was being picked up by friends' parents for sleepovers, is I would give the address of the nicer house down the street from where we lived, and I would go walk and wait in front of that, rather than have them pick me up at the garage apartment where we lived. Mm. So you carried around a sense of shame for your financial status as a regular thing every day. It was basically a sense of fear. At the same time, a strange obsession with financial stability. Like I remember a few seminal financial moments. One When I was, I think, eight years old, my grandfather took me to the bank and got me my first savings account and he put $5 in it. And I would go back religiously every month to see how much interest I had. Because to me, that just seemed like magic. I was like, you mean it was worth $5 and now it's $5 and two cents? Like, I was like, what is this? Almost looking around, like, does everyone know that this is happening? Like, you just get free money for doing nothing. The other was one time I had dropped a $20 bill that my mom had that was for groceries outside. And for a while, she couldn't find it. And I remember her being apoplectic. She was so panicky because that was our food money. And then the third was when I was 18 years old, I had my first grown-up bank account. There was one day that I went to take $20 out. And I couldn't because my account balance was $18. Right. 
And I had what I think of as my Scarlett O'Hara moment, which is I will never not be able to take $20 out of an ATM. I, I will live on the street. I will eat dirt as long as I can take $20 out of an ATM. You made an interesting distinction. You talked about financial stability. A lot of people who are poor say, I want to be rich. They don't say, I want to be stable. Did you think about rich as just having enough to eat and not having to worry about having money? Or did you look at Porsches and go, I want that? I mean, it's such an interesting question. And I wish I was in therapy because I'd love to really deconstruct that because I never cared about, for the most part, impressing people. And I didn't care about comfort that much. For me, and maybe this is my Scottish ancestry, my interest was actually bank balances. Like I didn't want things. I've never been a materialist. Even when I've made money, I've never bought anything terribly nice except for some real estate. But it was always bank balances, you know, and the idea of, and I'm kind of grateful for this in a way, the idea of always aggressively living within my means. The thought of borrowing money ever terrifies me. Like even borrowing 50 cents from someone to buy some gum, that scares me. Like (laughs) I've never, ever had debt. Again, I would rather be sleeping on the street eating cardboard boxes than have even 0.001% of debt. I know that's irrational. I've had financial advisors make the case for debt. And I understand some people are really good at it. Some people like Donald Trump are really bad at it. But the idea of having even the tiniest bit of debt is terrifying to me. So I can see you're in a room. It appears to be in a house. Is that your house? And do you have a mortgage on that house? Every single thing I've ever bought in my life, I've bought with cash. That's interesting. Even the crazy apartments you bought when you became super successful, you paid cash for? Yeah, I would never. And I had business managers and accountants saying, if you (laughs) borrow money, you can deduct the interest payments. You can also use the other money to invest and make more money. And I was like, no, I will never look at a balance sheet and see debt too frightening. I actually kind of admire that. I think that's cool. It's so irrational. Like I don't, if it would be cool if it was a choice, like if it was a product of reason and evidence, but it's just the terror of debt. Let's say that it's either one way or the other and that both are irrational. Having an irrational fear of debt or having no fear of debt whatsoever, of the two, I think you're in the healthier camp. Empirically speaking, looking at the world in which we live, the way in which people treat debt clearly is pathological. Every person I know, for the most part, is made miserable by their student loans, by their credit card debt, by their mortgage payments, by their this. And I'm like, my approach was always like when I was 19 years old, it was like, okay, I'll go live in an abandoned factory. That way I won't have to borrow money from it. And I remember when I was even, (laughs) when I was starting to sell a lot of records, I still lived in a very small apartment in New York. And this person I was dating came over and she said, she said, you know, you're a rock star. Why do you live like a student? (laughs) And I was like, because I don't care. I slept on the same futon even after selling 10 million records 
because I was like, it works. Why would I get something better? You know, like I almost feel like a strange kinship to like some of these like old robber baron capitalists where like they wouldn't have enough money for a taxi, but they own all the railways. Right. Somebody with the hundred million dollars has got a suitcase with duct tape holding it together. That kind of thing. Makes per- that makes so much sense. And it was like, if the suitcase works, why would you get something else? As someone who's done a lot of work on his own addiction, what do you see the relationship between debt and addiction? People out there are addicted to rotating credit. There's so many ways, again, to deconstruct that. There's, if I could be really grad student-y and say there's a neurochemical aspect to it, which is it's the primacy of the neural architecture not involving our prefrontal cortex. You know, it's basically, it's that old psychological test where like you take a kid And you say, here's a marshmallow. You can eat it right now. But if you don't eat it in two minutes, you get five marshmallows. Mm. They all eat the marshmallow. (laughs) You know, it's the inability to perceive or create delayed gratification. And in a way, I'm doing the same thing. But my gratification is fueled by my terror of death. I think order is an under valued asset in a lot of people's lives. And I value it as well. When it comes to finances, I like to see a clean balance sheet. That makes me happy. But let's talk about music. You're a child walking around with a lot on his mind with inferiority complex driven by your financial situation. It seems like music was a place for you to escape and find meaning in your life. How old were you when you started playing an instrument? I started playing music when I was around eight. At a very early age, because I grew up around a lot of addiction, a lot of chaos, I decided, and I talk about this in the documentary, when I was around three or four years old, my brain decided for me what was safe and what wasn't. And I almost decided like, okay, music, books, movies, animals, nature, those things are safe. People, absolutely not safe. I've spent most of my life living alone with music, books, animals, nature, and avoiding people as much as possible. I like people. I prefer them when they're writing good books, but, (laughs) but music. So I discovered it when I was eight and completely fell in love with it and started playing guitar. And then I played in punk rock bands and played in new wave bands and then discovered electronic music. But it was at an early age. I mean, I decided to sort of dedicate my life to music but without any idea that it would ever lead to a job. When did it become a job? When did it become something you figured, hey, maybe this will work as a way to pay my bills? Or was it even that conscious of a choice? Um, The first time was in 1984, I dropped out of UConn and I eventually went back to SUNY Purchase, but I dropped out of UConn. I was as broke as broke can be, sleeping on my mom's couch. And the woman I was dating at the time who broke up with me soon after, understandably, because who wants to date a 19 year old anxiety ridden college dropout who's sleeping on his mom's couch. She introduced me to a friend of hers who owned a bar in Port Chester, New York. And he felt sorry for me. And he gave me a job DJing Monday nights and paid me $20. And that was the moment I realized like, Oh, if I stay home, I play records But if I go to this bar, I play the same records and I get $20. And at the time I was drinking. So I was like $20 and three beer seemed perfect. Good night. 
when do you go from I can make twenty dollars to oh I'm actually really good at this? Like this is something that I can do that not many people can do. Oh, I don't think I've ever gotten to that point. <laughs> Come on. When Was did that... people start telling you that even if you haven't felt it, when did people start telling you that you were really good at it? Throughout the 90s, it happened, but there was also like lots of ups and downs. There were records that did well, records that failed. And then there was that moment when the albums Play in 18 and then this album Hotel that did really well in Europe. There was definitely a lot of, we'll call it like quantifiable validation. So I went from being aggressively self-deprecating to being sort of an arrogant dick, but not about whether I was good at something but I just thought, oh, you know, I'm selling records and people like me. So therefore, I guess I'm going to be arrogant because that seems like a defense against insecurity. In a relatively short period of time over the course of the 90s, you go from playing clubs in New York and you put out some singles to get some traction and you do a record that is a punk rock diversion away from electronic dance music, which fails. And almost as a last resort, you start putting together this album called Play. Mm -hmm. How does that come together? So the album before Play was called Animal Rights. That's the punk rock record you mentioned. And it just failed. Terrible <laughs> reviews, sold nothing. The tour was so sad. I mean, like, for example, we played a show on that tour in Paris. We sold 40 tickets. And by the end of the show, there were 20 people in the audience. So I lost my record deal in North America. My mom died. I was battling anxiety and alcoholism. And I thought, okay, Daniel Miller, who owned a company called Mute Records, was willing to let me make one more record. And I thought, I'm going to make this one last record, do a month-long tour, and then probably go back and get my PhD and become a philosophy professor at some community college somewhere. And the album was playing and ended up being very successful. So my plans on getting my PhD and teaching at Norwalk Community College were scuppered. I'm sorry that didn't come true for you. You sold over 12 million copies of Play, just that record, correct? And in these days of streaming, you know, it's funny. I learned recently album charts don't actually include album sales anymore. Who buys albums? Yeah, I mean, apart from like the occasional vinyl collector, I don't know anyone. But at the time, in 1999, when it came out, it was probably the heyday of the CD, maybe starting to taper off a little bit, but you sold tens of millions of copies. Every song, if Wikipedia is to be believed, every song on that record was licensed for TV, film, or commercial usage. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So it isn't just popular in one genre of music. It just saturates the culture and radio, TV, film, you're surrounded by Moby's music. So it became a very of the period type of experience, the impact of which went beyond the record sales. That's how I remember it. I was 30 years old when it came out. I was living in New York City and I was like, holy shit, this is the biggest thing in music over those few years. That's how it felt. And you became famous and you achieved a status that was far beyond your wildest dreams. What was the best part of becoming famous? At the time, I mean, like, in hindsight, maybe this is, sounds a little esoteric, but in hindsight, the best thing about becoming famous is experiencing fame firsthand, because then you can no longer have illusions about it. Because we live in a culture where the vast majority of people think that 
fame will deliver happiness. And like, until you've experienced it, you don't understand that it's not a monolithic institution. Like it's not just this magic chalice that's handed to you that delivers happiness. Like it's, it's as weird, if not more weird than any other human institution. That's how I feel about it now. At the time, it was simply people were nice to me. Like everywhere I went, I felt special. And that was without question the best thing about it. But you said corrupted you. Is that purely in hindsight or could you feel it happening while it was going on? Oh, I could not for a second feel it happening while it was going on. Like <laughs> I, because, you know, when I was 16, I was listening to Minor Threat. I grew up in the punk rock world. I had been raised by intellectuals. I fancied myself a fairly clear thinking intellectual as well. And I thought like I was not going to buy into this institution of shallow fame and vapid celebrities. But of course, I 100% bought into shallow fame and, you know, hanging out with vapid celebrities. And it was, if we had been talking in 2000, I would have probably created this narrative around how fame was not important to me. Meanwhile, I would have been hung over already planning on like which celebrity party I was going to go to that night and getting ready to call my manager to have them like read record sales to me so I could feel good about myself. I was living in a very diluted and diluted place as well. And so even though those next records, 18 and Hotel, actually did pretty damn well, they didn't do as well as play, and you started to feel like you were becoming less relevant, less important. Is that what it felt like? Oh, yeah. I mean, play got largely very good reviews, and it became this beloved record. People loved it, and it was everywhere. I just wanted that to go on forever. And then 18 came out. And it got some okay reviews, but it also like the press backlash turned against me. And then the album Hotel came out and it did well in a bunch of European countries, but in the UK and the States, it did nothing. And the reviews were terrible. And the press at that point were either turned against me or just had dismissed me. And it was so painful because I wanted, I wanted the love that I had experienced during the play campaign to just go on forever. And it was so clear that that was no longer the case. And so I sort of tried to make up for it by drinking and doing more drugs. It seems like you took the downside of fame more personally than you took the upside of fame. As you're talking in your documentary that you took the downside of fame really personally. You took the critics' words really personally. You took Eminem dissing you in one of his songs really personally do you think that if you could have separated yourself from that, held all that at arm's length, you would have been able to continue to make more music on your own terms and maybe be less self-conscious about what people were expecting from you? Well, luckily, that's eventually what happened. It just took me a while to have what should have been a very self-evident epiphany. The start of the epiphany was around maybe 2003, 2004, I was reading some Gawker Gothamist piece. Because at that point, I was so self-obsessed, I would try and read everything that was written about me. Right. And there was this one Gawker Gothamist piece where they insulted me, as they often did. But I was like, yeah, it's Gawker Gothamist. That's what they do. Who cares? No big deal. But then the first comment was some guy saying that he hated me so much if he saw me on the street he was going to stab me and watch me bleed to death in front of him. 
And a little voice in the back of my head said, this is not right. And that little voice said, okay, all these people who hate you, you don't know them. My little voice said, you've never met them. Why are you giving yourself to them? Why are you giving your well-being and your sense of self to strangers? And the irrationality of that struck me. Of course, it took years for that to finally sink in. And now I've arrived at a place that you sort of described where I don't read any article about me. I don't read reviews. I don't watch myself on television. If I do a podcast, I would categorically refuse to listen to it. I apologize. I'm sure this, I listen to your podcast with other guests, just never me. When I go on social media, I don't look at comments or if I'm forced to, it's very brief and professional. So it's like realizing that my sense of self, my, who I am as an individual should not be influenced by the opinions of people I've never actually met. And if you actually did meet that guy, he'd probably be thrilled to meet you and be like, oh my God, it's Moby. Oh, I happened to write this thing about you online that was horrible. What makes it even more absurd, this happened to a friend of mine recently. She was on Twitter and she was having this argument with someone. And at some point she realized it was like a 15-year-old kid in a Macedonian cube farm. (laughs) So like now when you argue with people on social media or when you're attacked on social media, you're not even being attacked by humans. You're being attacked by robots. Yeah, it's some bot in Estonia, right? Yeah. You still seem to have trouble admitting that you had a real impact artistically. You sort of are shrugging off the impact of play and your accomplishment. Does it mean something to you that your music has meant a lot to millions of other people? The emotional connection that people have had to some of the music I've made, it's humbling and potentially profound because I've had a lot of people tell me that, you know, the music I've made was played at their parents' funeral or their best friend's funeral or the music I made was part of someone's wedding ceremony. And like that is humbling. Like I still don't know how to respond except to say like, thank you and I'm humbled and honored. I guess a sense of responsibility that comes along with that, but like that is wonderful. Again, I won't take any credit for it, but I do think it's really remarkable to be involved in those intimate moments of people's lives. How many 22-year-olds do you think are walking around out there who were conceived to porcelain? Perhaps some. (laughs) It's greater than zero. I'll bet you you 100 bucks it's greater than zero. I definitely have been told by some people that my music was part of their sort of makeout playlist. What's funny, though, is I've been sober now for a while. And another thing I hear sometimes if I go to 12-step meetings is people will pull me aside and say, like, oh, man, I used to do so many drugs to your music. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so... We're in a 12-step meeting, so you're okay, but should I apologize? Like, Oh, they would have done drugs to anybody's music. They would have found music that fit their mood. No, but I mean, seriously, it does seem that you resist taking credit for the good things that you have brought into this world, right? And is that because you don't feel you deserve the credit or because you see yourself as an objective channel through which this music arrives on the planet? Well, for a bunch of reasons. First and foremost... When I was growing up, I was such a fan of other musicians that that's how I self-identify. Like I'm first and foremost a fan. And whenever I've made music, 
all I've tried to do is get to a place similar to where my favorite musicians have already been. So when I'm working on music, it's sort of to try and create an emotional reaction in me that is maybe similar to how I feel about other people's music. Like, first and foremost, I guess I'm just a fan. And I, so I don't see, like, I'm pretty good at certain aspects of, like, I can play guitar really well. I'm not a terrible drummer. But the credit aspect, I guess there's also the sort of Asperger's utilitarian practical part of me that asks the question, what benefit would be created if I gave myself more credit? I can't think of any, so. Well, which part of the creation process do you enjoy the most? The creation process is the beginning. Like, being in my studio by myself, working on music with no expectations or assumptions about whether anyone's going to hear it, whether it will get reviewed, released, etc. Just the act of being in my studio, making music. It's not even a job. That's just joy. So you've got this new record coming out, Reprise. Tell me about it. Why now? So I did my first ever orchestral show in Los Angeles about four years ago with the LA Philharmonic. And after the show, a woman named Hannah from Deutsche Grammophon contacted me and said, would you ever be interested in making an orchestral greatest hits album? And one, it appealed to me in a Fitzcarraldo way of like, wow, what an ambitious project. I've never done anything like that. And then there's a small part of me that when I was very young, I studied music theory and I was sort of excited to use some of my music theory experience, like in doing arrangements and orchestrations. But the other part of me is just emotionally, because really, I mean, the ultimate utility of music is communicating emotion is my love for orchestral and acoustic music. And I just wanted to sort of avail myself of that for the first time. You mentioned being a fan first. And one of the songs on this record is a cover of David Bowie's Heroes, which is sung by Mindy Jones, who has a ridiculously beautiful voice. What would you want David to think of that track? Well, so it's funny. The first job I ever had was at Weeburn Country Club in Darien, Connecticut. I have to assume some people listening are probably very familiar with Weeburn Country Club in Darien, Connecticut. It's like, I think the oldest, fanciest country club in Darien. And I, when I was 13, I got a job there as a caddy. And keep in mind, I was little. Like, I'm little now. I was littler then. So, like, caddies are not supposed to be little. So, they would give me the old people, um, specifically <laughs> old ladies, because their golf bags didn't weigh that much. And they walk slowly. So like middle of July, 13 years old, carrying an old lady's golf bag around the Weeburn 18. And uh, when I'd saved up enough money to buy some albums, I quit. And I went to the local record store called Johnny's and I bought two David Bowie albums. So David Bowie had been my favorite musician of all time. And then in 2000, we became friends and we went on tour together and we worked on music together we had holidays together and there was this one moment where he came over to my apartment on Mott street and we played heroes on acoustic guitar together, just the two of us. And so the version that's on reprise, this version of heroes, it's a testament to the song, but a tribute to David and my friendship with him. And that moment of playing heroes with him on acoustic guitar. That's pretty cool, man. If you get nothing else out of, 
your success, satisfaction, pride, money. You get to have played heroes with David Bowie in your. Oh, I've somehow managed to play music with my favorite musicians. I played Walk on the Wild Side with Lou Reed. We did a 10 minute version of it at South by Southwest about 10, no, maybe like 15 years ago. I played a Joy Division song with Joy Division because I don't have a ton of shame in asking people to play music. So I've just gone out of my way to ask my heroes like, hey, can I play music with you? That's pretty amazing. What do you want to accomplish with the time you have left on earth? Well, my job is not music. Music is what I love. Like my job is work and forgive me if this sounds indelicate in some way, but my job is trying to end the use of animals by humans. Mainly for me, because I can't be involved in anything that causes or contributes to animal suffering. You know, that's why I'm a vegan. But I think if you remove animals from meat and dairy, meaning just look at it as an industry, it's the worst industry that humans have ever created in terms of its consequences. You know, it results in diabetes, cancer, heart disease, antibiotic resistance, rainforest deforestation, climate change, water use, red tides, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's the worst industry on the planet. And that's saying something because we have some pretty nasty industries. So my job, like if, if I could only accomplish one thing, it would be to help end the use of animals for food by humans. I mean, it'd be great to end the use of animals for other things, but specifically for food, because it's not just destroying animals, it's destroying us and the only home we have. You know, as I was talking about this with Al Gore, and he actually describes this as the real inconvenient truth that, that almost no one, I mean, luckily people like Bill Gates is looking at it. There are a lot of, you know, the economist called last year, the year of the vegan that was before the pandemic happened. <laughs> I just finished so. Bill Gates book, how to avoid a climate disaster. And he talks about animal use specifically as one of the main contributors. It's pretty interesting. That's my job. That's my goal. That's like, and it's not fun. It's horrifying. You know, working on music is fun. Like I love it. Like that's almost like my refuge from being an animal rights activist. Last question. Do you feel rich? No. I, I mean, I have enough money to not worry too much about money. If I started spending stupidly, I would have to worry about money. But like, I figured out how to, unless things go terribly wrong, I figured out how to live within my means. And hopefully that will continue to be the case for a while. But as far as rich goes, I mean, I grew up in Connecticut. I lived in New York and I live in California. So I know rich people. <laughs> um, I mean, and you do as well. Like I have enough money so that I don't have to worry that much about money. But like we all have those friends who've done incredibly well. And, you know, like it's absurd especially after this last year, how much money some of our friends have. So like, I'm surprised that I have enough money to not worry that much about money because I grew up always worried about money. But then there's also that question of, I mean, this is such a longer conversation. I almost don't even want to go down to it, but like the role of money in people's lives, you know, like I want someone to take an objective look at money. When we talk about money, whether it's 
Bernie Sanders or Warren Buffett or whether it's at Davos or whatever, it's kind of still a 19th century conversation. For example, there's one metric that I find so fascinating, and it really should be very telling as far as how the role of money in our lives has changed, is that this is the first time in human history where the less money you make, the more likely you are to die of a disease related to excess. You know, obesity, diabetes are far more prevalent with people who make less money. I'm just saying, historically, that's never been the case. Your body mass index goes down the closer you get to being a billionaire. When you think of like, you know, these industrialists from the 19th century who were 150 pounds over, you know, the, the tasks of the world or whatever. And at the time, like the poor were emaciated and starving. There does need to be at some point an actual reassessment of money. Like I had this, sorry for rambling on, but I had this realization a few years ago. I read an article about P. Diddy who had just moved into like a 30,000 square foot house in Bel Air. The same time a friend of mine moved to a tiny little studio apartment in Studio City in California. And I had just moved into the house I'm in now, which is just a normal house. And I realized our daily experience was almost identical, all three of us, meaning we woke up in a bed that was pretty comfortable. We had breakfast and opened up our laptops, maybe took a shower. There's a good chance my friend in Studio City had better water pressure than P. Diddy. Who knows? But certainly like <laughs> the, for a lot of people, the material well-being around finance is so different metrically than it was up until very, very, obviously this is not the case for huge parts of the world, but I'm just saying like, I still feel like we are having a 19th century conversation about finance. Everything has changed, you know, the means of production, the cost of production, distribution, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We just haven't really recognized it and caught up to it. Well, when you're ready to have that conversation about the use of money in society, I am down for it. And we'll schedule that as part two. But for the time being, your publicist is going to kill me if I don't get you off to your next conversation. Your new album coming out on May 28th is called Reprise. It is accompanying the new documentary, Moby Doc. Where can people find the new film? That's a good question. I assume after May 28th, there are those proprietary places. You know, there's the Disney's, Apple's, whatever. It won't be there. I assume Amazon, iTunes, Maybe depends on where someone's listening to this, some local streaming services, maybe Netflix, maybe not. I mean, luckily, like if you Google the name of a movie and where is it streaming, it comes up in all the places where it's streaming. So, right. All right. Well, we'll encourage people. We'll have a link in the show notes. We'll encourage people to Google Moby Doc and the album reprise. Is that going to be on Spotify and all the major streaming services? Oh, yeah. Every, I mean, and the vinyl, I have to say, if anyone's inclined to collect vinyl, the vinyl is pretty cool, which I know is one of the most self-serving things a musician has ever said, but Deutsche Grammophon, the record label, did a really phenomenal job with the vinyl. And I can say that objectively because I had very little to do with it. Well, it's cool that we're at a place with vinyl that a label will actually invest and bring that to market. That wouldn't have been the case 20 years ago. It's also fascinating. Vinyl is the only stable physical musical platform. Like vinyl sells more than CDs now. Well, Moby, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. I wish you best of luck in all that you do, especially with the new album and the new film. Thanks for your time. Well, thanks. It was really nice speaking with you as well. Hopefully the audio and the video and everything worked out okay. 
I found that really interesting, and I appreciate Moby taking the time to share his insights into his life. By all means, make a note to yourself to check out the new documentary, Moby Doc, out May 28th. Links to his website and to the trailer are in the show notes. The orchestral version of a lot of his old songs are really cool. This new record, Reprise, which I've had a chance to listen to, is well worth your time. See the link to that in the show notes also. Let's jump to takeaways. It's funny, you know, he's talked about Darianne, Connecticut, and how it's come up on the show before. The one time it came up specifically was in my conversation with New York Times wealth reporter Paul Sullivan, who wrote a book called The Thin Green Line. And The Thin Green Line was the denotation I think that's a word, the line between rich and wealthy. What's the difference between rich and wealthy? And he defines wealthy as people that make a lot of money, but also have a strong income or assets versus spending level ratio. Whereas rich is somebody who makes a lot of money, but spends a lot of money. And he uses Darien, Connecticut as the example of the place where there's a ton of, there's a lot of wealthy people, but there's also more rich people. And that a lot of the people in Darien are spending way above their means meaning like they have the fancy private schools, the big houses, the country clubs, but they don't have a lot of assets behind that. And it was just interesting that listening to Moby's take as a child growing up in that environment, it appears from the outside that everybody else is doing really, really well. But the fact of the matter is we never know. We never know how other people are doing. And a lot of people who appear to have a lot of cash and seem to be wealthy are maybe rich or not even rich. So interesting point of view to think about, gee, maybe if he had known the truth as a kid, he wouldn't have felt so bad about himself way back when. Second point, money won't fix you. As Moby discussed, he'd made millions of dollars, sold millions of records, had everything he'd ever wanted, bought big, expensive penthouse apartments, and he didn't feel any different. He felt still broken inside, still felt like the third-class citizen, disenfranchised person that he was. He can't even take credit for the good music he's brought into the world. He doesn't feel entitled to do that. I think that's kind of sad, unfortunately. I think it's also more regular than we think it might, which leads me to third insight takeaway, which is don't spend a lot of time comparing yourself against people who are rich and famous because you can't just take the fame or the money or the accolades or a feeling of being good at what they do because they don't necessarily feel good about it. Maybe they even enjoy the money They might have a brain that is no picnic to deal with on a daily basis. They might be paying a price for fame you and I can't even imagine because we don't have to deal with all that stuff. Can you imagine being famous and also having all these addiction problems that he has and trying to hide those from the rest of the world? Crazy, crazy stuff. It's also related to the next episode we've got coming up, not about the addiction part, but about the holistic part of a brain that might create amazing creative stuff or create amazing entrepreneurial insights, but has the downside of bringing with it existential depression and anxiety. And next week, my guest is Melissa Bernstein. She is the founder of Melissa and Doug Children's Toys. And she's just written a book called Lifelines, which is all about the fact that she's been dealing with existential depression since her earliest memory as a child. And that that brain is the flip side of the brain that created this amazing, highly profitable organization that has made her a successful entrepreneur, successful businesswoman, but she still deals with terror, existential terror on a daily basis. We go into depth on that conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. That'll be next week, Melissa Bernstein. 
Thanks for sticking all the way to the end. If you have a minute, write a review, rate the show. It really helps us out. And in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.